Welcome to Canadian Time Machine, a podcast that unpacks key milestones in our country's history. It's funded by the Government of Canada and created by the Walrus Lab. I'm Angela Misri. This episode is about the 50th anniversary of the Decorations for Bravery, which was celebrated in 2022. The recipients are Canadians who have risked their lives to try to save others from imminent danger. In other words, everyday heroes. In the decades since the awards were created, more than 4,000 Canadians have been recognized for their courage in situations ranging from wildlife attacks to burning buildings to car accidents. No matter how different the circumstances, however, all the recipients seem to share one quality, a willingness to put aside their own safety for the well-being of others. This is precisely what Eamon Durbali did on January 29, 2017. That was the day the father of three ran towards a gunman who had opened fire on worshippers at a mosque in Quebec. I'm happy that I was shot seven times. So they, uh, there are other people that they did, they didn't have uh, bullets. Uh, it makes me happy for me <laughs> because uh, I don't want to. I don't want other uh, innocent people uh, behind me to receive bullets that I have received. The horrific attack took the lives of six people and injured many others. Durbali was left paralyzed for life. But according to Al Jazeera, he says he would do it all over again if he had to. Durbali received the Medal of Bravery in 2020. It's a silver medal with the image of a maple leaf surrounded by a wreath of laurel, which is a symbol of triumph or victory. On the back is the royal cipher and an inscription of the word bravery in French and English. It hangs on a red ribbon with three blue horizontal stripes. It's one of three levels and insignia within the decorations for bravery, the other two being the Star of Courage and the Cross of Valor. These days, the medals are presented by the Governor-General, but it was Queen Elizabeth II who originally granted royal approval of the insignia in 1972. Sadly, the former monarch died just one day before the 50th celebration of its inception. Joining me now to discuss this at more length is the Right Honourable Adrian Clarkson. Madam Clarkson served as Canada's 26th Governor-General from 1999 to 2005. During her tenure, she awarded decorations of bravery to more than 400 Canadians, recognizing their courage and dedication to their fellow citizens. And just a note before we dive into our conversation, you're going to hear a few numbers and figures in this episode. Please note that some of them are estimates. Welcome to the show, Madam Clarkson. Well, thank you very much, Angela. So we're here to talk about the decorations for bravery. And I understand the decorations for bravery consist of three levels and insignia. Can you tell us a bit about the selection process for each of these? The selection process is done by uh, an independent group of people. Um, and through our honors system at uh, at Rideau Hall, um, all the honors are handled in a very, dis- shall I say, dispassionate and and um, and fair way. I think we have the best honors system of any country in the world um, because we have that kind of of um, separation. I mean, I can't give you. Um, a bravery award just because you saved my cat. Um, and uh, even though I was governor general, I couldn't do that. Uh, but we choose the people who are going to choose these very carefully. And then they make their recommendations. And then I, as, as the governor general, sign off on them. But a lot of trust uh, happens in that, in that, um, in that process. 
And that is why I think we have the best honor system um, in the world. That goes for the Order of Canada as well. In other countries, including the one of which some people consider our mother country um, or our two two founding countries, um, apart from the Aboriginal nations, um, they are fairer because they do other things and, and have wonderful ways of honoring people. So you get these recommendations. Then how do you make the decision at the end of the day? I don't make a decision. They The recommendations ah. come in. Um, and they say these, you know, these are the ranks, and this is what they've done. And then I sign off on it. Um, but that is that is how it is done. It is very dis- it is very detached, and it is um, it is like all things in in a kind of Anglo-Saxon system. It is it is the recommendation of the people whom you've chosen to choose the people, and you trust those people, and um, and that's that's what it is. Can you take us back to the moment you awarded your very first decoration for bravery? What was that like? The first group of people, I was always very interested in the bravery wars, and I would read about it in the paper and think, oh, how interesting. And I always assumed, and I think a lot of people do, that it would be somebody running back into their house to save their grand their grandchild, who was a six-month-old child on the third floor in the attic, and the stairs collapsing as they clutch that baby and stagger out. I always assumed that bravery actions were done by people who were friends or family or whatever. What was most stunning to me immediately was that that was not true. I'll give you one example, and it's not it's not the, an example. I'll just give. I'm making it up, but it's exactly what it was. A person is driving along a highway, uh, say along the Fraser River. Uh, there is a bridge across the Fraser River. A woman jumps into the Fraser River. It is end of March. It is very cold, right? The person leaps out of their car and swims and saves that person, brings them to the shore, and calls the fire department if they get them revived. They are saving a person from suicide. So the instinct to save a person, another person's life, is what I think is the most stunning thing about uh, the Courage and Bravery Awards. It is that instinct of the human being to save another human being. And I believe, really, that it comes from the deepest cortex that we have in terms of we were once homo sapiens and we had to survive and we had to make sure that everybody that we knew was like us could survive in order for us to fend off the others or the, and break out from the Neanderthal, etc. And so we save people. And that is the natural instinct of human beings, is to save one of our own. It is only with the growth of societal um, conditions, whatever you want to call them, I want to put valueless words on them, it's hard, conditions, um, constructs, competition, etc., that we became what we would call competitive, um, cutthroat, etc. I've just spent the holidays reading the most wonderful book, The Evolution of Charles Darwin, because I've always been very interested in Darwin, who spent five years going around the world, as you know, as the naturalist who was preparing to take Anglican orders as a priest, um, but decided he was really interested in nature. 
and went along as the kind of intellectual companion of very interesting Captain Fitzroy, who was in, interested and had been made to do longitude and latitude and to, to map things around the world. They were away for five years. And Darwin, every time they stopped anywhere, Darwin would take off, you know, with one guide and make friends with the gauchos in, in Argentina, for instance, and ride, because he was an English gentleman, he knew how to ride wonderfully, could ride 50 miles a day without tiring, um, ride through the pampas and see people and do things. And his evolutionary theory was not what you call survival of the fittest by people killing each other uh, who were human beings. Survival of the fittest is really about people adapting to the climate and to um, to the kinds of uh, uh, challenges that their their environment or their 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 society gives them. Um, we are wrong to believe that it means that we should kill each other as human beings in order to survive. And my feeling about the Bravery Awards confirmed this so firmly to me in every possible way. It was, it was simply stunning to see how people were selfless in trying to save other people. And one of the people, uh, it was wonderful because you'd have lunch with them after, and I'd sit at the different tables having different courses with different people. And one of the people, and this was very common in almost every um, bravery award, there would be one instance where, like the first one, where somebody hauled somebody out of a vehicle and the vehicle blew up, and etc. But usually it was individual cars. That identification of oneself with others is the human reaction. It is the true human reaction. And the other things that we have brought into bear in order for us to kill each other or, or triumph over each other, etc., are, are social constructs that have come in uh, that are against what we, are, what we have developed evolutionarily, I'm sure. And that just you know those those that experience those experiences have really had an enormous meaning for me, um, because these people were not you know heroes. And I said to the people who had saved, there were three instances where somebody had saved somebody from suicide. And I said, did the person ever get in touch with you or thank you or anything? They said, no, never heard from them again, or I don't know. Um, and that in a way didn't even matter. The act is in the saving of the life. The act is in, uh, in that, uh, that ability of the person to understand that life is in itself enormously precious and that we all need to realize that. Um, that, that to me, was the lesson of the Bravery Awards. So many of the situations you're talking about are so random, but others, like the Quebec mosque shooting, they seem to point to larger societal issues. Do you have any thoughts on how the decorations for bravery could help bring to light some of these systemic issues? Well, that's just, you know, again, it's people being threatened and somebody coming to their, coming and saying, no, I don't want you to die because I'm a human being like you are, and I wouldn't want to die, so I don't want you to die. And that's as simple as that. I think that's the knee-jerk reaction. And I don't, and it's not, I don't think, and I'd have discussions with philosophers about this, but I don't think it comes into, is it right or wrong to kill you? Is it right or wrong 
that you are a Muslim and I am not, and I don't want you to be a Muslim because I don't believe Muslims believe the right things. I don't think any of that is it. I think it really is, I don't want these people to be killed. And, um, and so when you look at it that way, then you see that war, for instance, is a total aberration and an aberration of our nature as human beings and that we introduced it enormously successfully to destroy each other and to create uh, to create barriers and um, hierarchies and things that would allow us uh, to do as I say the social construct but I think in in that in that uh, the, 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 the way in which people behave with courage and you know it the the root of the word courage is core the latin heart and that is courage comes from the heart and courage as churchill said is the uh is the quality which is the one that guarantees all the others therefore it's the most important people with courage are able to be good People with courage are able to um, to do uh, to to give things to other people. People who have courage are able to change things that are wrong. And you have to have courage first, or you can't. Nothing else. Nothing else works. It doesn't mean force. I mean, courage doesn't mean force or 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 being able to you know assemble armies, etc. But it is a very very interesting thing to look at, and I think. I don't know if people are doing PhDs on this, but they certainly should be, because it's cert- it's very, very interesting to see. You can understand in war situations why people save each other, because um, they, they know the platoon has to be saved, and land has to be gained, and all of that is, is human construct of domination. Um, but in these random acts of things, in the six years that I was governor general, it was really people who were total strangers to each other, including, you know, drowning by trying to save somebody, uh-huh. a stranger, trying to get somebody out of a riptide. Um, and those instincts are, are really fascinating ones and ones that we should be doing a lot more work on. And I think in, in a way, a vaguely veiled way, we try to do that, but we don't think enough about it. And I think those instinct things are, are because we so much value training and inculcation and um, socialization, etc., that we really don't trust those kinds of basic instincts. Um, and I think it's really, it's really fascinating to me. And, and I, it really taught me a lot, and I was always extremely moved to be at those ceremonies there was there was really nothing like them they sound incredible they they sound incredible they, they were they were the most they were the most wonderful of course you have the advantage as, as governor general of, of being able to award all kinds of things for excellence and in, in everything um but these these things of were unexpected to me totally unexpected and they caused me to think about life and the way in which you approach life in a completely different way, completely different way, um, especially people saving people from suicide. Hmm. Could you talk a bit about that? 
Well, I think if somebody wants to end their life um, uh, and they've taken, you know, they decide they're going to do that by jumping off a bridge, it probably isn't, shall we say, rational, um, uh, because, you know, the chances are uh, to do it in such a way is going to attract attention and it's going to um, uh, maybe get you rescued if you jump off a bridge and there's a boat going by, whatever. Um, so it made me think a lot about about you know, end of life and ending ending life, but you know that kind of thing you'd never you couldn't practice for that. There's no way in which you can rehearse bravery or courage, and you don't know and what your reaction will be to it because it's not as though your own life were at stake. Mm-hmm. It's not your own life at stake or that of your family or your baby, uh, all the people you really care about or your, even your dog or cat or your budgie. It's about, it's about something else. It's about, uh, it's about a life force. It's about m- ensuring that the most people um, have the ability to continue to enjoy the life you know, force as you are. I mean, but I think it's very, very instinctual. I don't, and it, it's not, it cuts across all, it cuts across all all factors of, of class, race, uh, economic background, um, geographic background, um, and was, uh, was really astonishing. Yeah, it's the stories are just, there's so many and they're so incredible. When you think about the fact that the Decorations for Bravery celebrated their 50th anniversary in 2022, why do you think this anniversary is significant? Well, I think that for one thing, it shows that it is a valid thing to recognize and that um, it makes us better people if we recognize it. I wish there were more stories written about them. Um, I wish there were more um, episodes, but most of the people did not want to be recognized that way. Um, they, they They were ordinary people who don't want to be known as the man who, you know, smashed the sunroof of somebody's car and saved them. Uh, forever. I mean, they have other things to do with their life. <laughs> that's the that's the feeling I I I got too. That they didn't want to have. They were very honored to get it. Um, very moved. They were happy, but they didn't want their life defined by that. And I think there's something really quite Canadian about it, which is which is wonderful. Um, you know, Canadians are not people who run around puffing their chests out and and, and doing things like that. And so. I always thought it was just lovely. I thought, I, you know, I've seen these people now, and I don't think I'll, I'll see them, um, I'll see them again. Well, it was a wonderful privilege to meet the people who've done these acts, because I think, for me, it was a defining moment about our common humanity, um, and and what people instinctively believe. Uh, about the way we should be together was very optimistic always. Uh, even when people had died, I guess even particularly when people had died trying to save somebody, um, and you really felt that you were 
touching the finest things that we have as human beings together. And that was what counted and will always count. I love that. I can't think of a better way to end this. This is perfect. I have no further questions, Madam Clarkson. Thank you so much for your time. Okay, Angie. Nice to talk to you. Nice to talk to you, too. Given it's the 50th anniversary of the Decorations for Bravery, we're going to speak with a recipient from the most recent awards ceremony. Russ Fee, a Calgarian who received a Medal for Bravery for saving a family from a wolf attack. Welcome, Russ. Thank you so much for having me. So take me back to the night of the attack. Where were you? Who were you with? What happened? Just lay it all out for us. (laughs) So it was August of 2019. I was camping in a campsite called Rampart Creek, uh, which is in Banff National Park in Alberta. And I was with my wife and two sons, uh, who were about 10 and 8 at the time. And um, we'd pretty much just sort of been setting up. Um, setting up camp as usual. I think the kids and and my wife went off to just explore a little bit. Uh, There's a river right next to it. So they were throwing rocks and doing all sorts of of stuff that way. And they they noticed that next to us was uh, a very similar family. It was a um, a husband, wife, and two sons. They were a little younger than ours, but um, they sort of of latched onto that as as potential friends. So they... um, they made quick plans to uh, perhaps introduce themselves the next day, but it was getting late, so we were uh, we were just getting settled for dinner. And it's just it's absolutely pristine. It's it's quite beautiful there. Um, the river is literally right on the on the campsite, so you can't really. It's quite loud. You can't hear a ton of of stuff. But um, it was interesting that when my wife was out with our son, she did come back and. Uh, she sort of, I don't think it was anything, but she did sort of say like, it's creepy because you can't hear anything. You just hear, you just hear water. So it sort of felt like something was watching us and I didn't really like it. Um, that was probably, she probably feels that way all the time. I don't know, but um, it was interesting because we did go to bed or we did stay up a bit late. Um, and we did sort of remark that, yeah, you can't hear much of anything in, in the trees. It's all, it's all the sound of water. And so we retired about probably about 11 o'clock at night. And uh, it was around 12 that we heard sort of a commotion from the, from the campsite next to us. And so when I heard this commotion, I was asleep already. So I couldn't tell if it was partying or it sounded a bit more aggressive than that. So I was a bit worried maybe it was a fight or something. But um, eventually we sort of heard uh, two people yelling for help. And so my for whatever reason, my mind just went immediately to the idea that uh, they'd lost a, a kid had gotten out. The kid had maybe gone to the bathroom in the night and they didn't know where he was and they were panicking. So um, my wife and I kind of had a bit of a back and forth, like, what do we do here? I, I don't think they, oh, maybe they need help, maybe they don't. And then we heard a very pronounced call for help at one point. And so uh, we both tried to um, sort of get going. It was, it was funny. Sorry to interrupt, but this is all happening while you're in the tent. You're having this conversation and you can hear sounds. Yeah, we've both just woken up to sort of the sound of um, what we thought might have just been a skirmish or just like people being loud. But um, it's getting more and more intense at this point. And so we realize there there is a problem and we should probably check it out. Um, immediately all mental faculties break down. We can't even, I couldn't even unzip the tent, which was weird. Um, I kept finding the zipper that undid sort of the, the window. <laughs> so I'd unzip it 
and I'd feel the screen and I'd zip it, I'd zip it again and I'd feel the screen again. And so it was sort of this, like, if it wasn't so serious, it'd be funny. Yeah. Um, eventually we did manage to get ourselves sort of out of the tent. Um, we didn't really know what was going on. So she just kind of handed me a pair of shoes and uh, a lantern, a little electronic lantern. Um, this is your wife and she's still in the tent. Yeah. We're both sort of like in like the little common area of the tent now. And it's just sort of this like, uh, good luck. I hope, (laughs) I hope it works out. And, uh, what's weird is looking back, I don't know why I didn't consider that it would be an animal. It just, it didn't cross my mind. I literally ran past a can of bear spray and I sort of hurtled over my ax and, uh, I just, yeah, I just sort of like started jogging towards the, towards the other site. And, um, just sort of calling out again, I'm working under the assumption for some reason that it, they've just misplaced a child. Right. And so I got a good, a bit of a run going and I'm trying to be heard cause they're just screaming away oh, and I can't quite tell what's going on. And so, um, just kind of calling out like, Hey, what's going on? I'm here. It's good. What can I, what can I do? Mm. And as I'm sort of doing my little preamble there, uh, my lantern illuminates their site just enough that I can see there is, uh, the back half of a wolf is in is sticking out of oh the my tent, God. and the whole tent's kind of rocking back and forth, which is which is kind of unexpected. But um, okay, so wait, describe it for me. What does the back end of a wolf sticking out of a tent look like? <laughs> like what does that even? Can, can you describe it? Yeah, for me? I've had a lot of people say like, "Why didn't you think it was a dog?" And it was just so tall. It's really, really like when you see a dog that is disarmingly large and it kind of grabs your attention, it's that sort of feeling. Um, it was, I'm not a tall person. I'm about five foot seven. Um, but like it was chest, it was sort of like chest height for, it felt like, it felt like chest height for me. Perhaps I'm remembering it more dramatically than it was, but, um, it was, it was quite clearly, um, too large or at least too tall to be a dog. Yeah. And so I had a bit of a run going. This is sort of where not being able to think clearly helped out, I guess, because um, I all I just thought is I should probably, you know, I got to get this thing out of this tent. And so um, I had a good, I had a good run going. And so I figured I could just use my momentum and I kind of yelled at it and um, just sort of ran and tried to kick it like it. I've never kicked a door in. I don't even know if that would work, but I, in my mind, if I was to kick a door, this is how I would do it. And so I sort of gave it the hardest kick I could sort of in the, in the back half. And, uh, I think I made it curious. I perhaps startled it. I don't think I heard it very much, but, um, it did pop out and sort of, it was, it's like, I've often said, it's sort of like that cartoon where there's like, you know, two guys fighting at a bar and one of them challenges the other to a fight. And then he realizes the other one had been sitting the whole time. He's actually twice as tall and he's in, it's like a, bazooka joe comic or something anyway this wolf comes out and i suddenly realize exactly what i what i've done here <laughs> and there is a brief moment you've engaged with a giant yeah oh i've uh i didn't i didn't see this coming and so it sort of pops out and i kind of realize that you know what happens next is sort of no longer up to me um it, the wolf's a little bit in control here and i think i try not to attribute you know too much. I try not to guess what the wolf was thinking, but it seemed a little more curious than um, angry, I guess would be the word. It wasn't snarling. It wasn't baring its teeth. It was just kind of staring at me. 
Um, I was doing my best to pretend like I was in control and, uh, not freaked out. So I was giving it some, I was, I was yelling pretty hard at it. I was, uh, trying to be, you know, as big as I can be, which is not very big, but, uh, and you have no weapons at this point. This is just your body and its body. No, I have a plastic Coleman lantern, which is, um, not going to do it. It's not, it's not going to, it's not going to fix our problem at all. So, um, as I'm yelling at it and trying to scream at it, um, Matt, my new buddy, Matt pops out of the tent. He is, uh, covered in blood. His eyes are as big as saucers because he's obviously had, he's had his own little ordeal that I didn't know was going on in the tent at the time. But, um, he pops out and he's just, he's just ready to go. <laughs> he's, he's quite engaged at this point and he's holding, uh, one of the tent poles that the wolf had snapped or had snapped when the, when the tent sort of toppled. And so now it's a, now at least it's two on one. And uh, the weirdest, most fortunate thing about Rampart Creek is all of the campsites are lined in rocks that have been painted white. So you can actually see them. They're about the size of cantaloupes, which is really nice. And so I was able to start grabbing rocks and kind of started just lobbing them at it. And I hit it a few times. Yeah, because right now it's like standing between you and the tent and Matt's coming out of the tent. So now it's like backing away from the tent or is it like trying to uh, stay? It's kind of just... It's it's sort of just standing its ground. I think it's trying to figure out whether to eat me or not. <laughs> Which this whole thing is confusing. Is this worth the exactly? Effort of yeah, this whole thing is very confusing because I'm aware, as much as a layman can be, that wolves. This is weird wolf behavior. This is really not like they're supposed to be quite skittish of people, um, and this one's just not going away. And so there's this weird sort of feeling out process. But I'm lobbing cantaloupe rocks at this at this guy. And uh, it's it, it's hitting it in the head, and it's not really doing anything. And this is where I start to realize that we've got a problem if I have to fight it. <laughs> because if rocks aren't doing it, I'm not going to be doing it. So um, we end up, it sort of just trots off, and it's in the bush. And so then I realize um, um, his Matt's wife, Elisa, um, her head pops out. And... Uh, She's in, she's in not a great, not a great, it's not a great scene. It's, this has been a very, this has been a very frightening moment. So, um, there's a bit of panic on everyone's, on everyone's mind right now. And, um, what's creepy is my flashlight is, or my, my lantern is just sort of, um, giving everything like a really eerie glow. And the wolf is just doing a perimeter sweep now. And it keeps sort of disappearing into the woods and then popping out again and then disappearing. It keeps appearing where we're not expecting it. So it's, it's, it's quite freaky. Um, they're trying to find their vehicle keys so they can get into their, their SUV. Um, but the wolf had done a real number. So what had happened was, um, I actually heard her side of the story just recently, so I should try to remember it as best I can, but it was sort of, um, Matt had noticed it on the outside of the tent and he kind of smacked at it. And it, it clamped down on his arm from the outside of the tent and sort of the, ripped its way in that way. And a lot of people, a lot of people like to come out with their, here's what I would have done story. Um, and a lot of people were saying that, you know, like, oh, you got to be more prepared. You got to be ready. Um, they were actually remarkably overprepared. Um, 
Elisa actually has a, a rather large fear of animals. Um, Matt's more of the camper. He was sort of bringing his family from the States into Canada to show them this, this awesome wilderness that we have. And, uh, so he was ready to go. I think he had, I believe he had a knife even on him, like around his neck, but Orton right next to him, one of the two, but once the wolf got in, everything turned upside down. And so everything got mixed together and I, I couldn't operate it. I couldn't operate a zipper. So he wasn't finding that keys or his knife at all. And so we sort of just watched it for a while while they tried to find keys. It wasn't really going well. So eventually I realized my site is, you know, 75 feet away. We can just go to it. Um, and I realized at this point, my wife does not know what's happening. She's heard me screaming and she's heard a lot of yelling from other people. So I have to assume she, she's guessing that it's a bear attack or something. Um, and so I kind of just said, okay, everyone, let's just gather everyone up and let's just go to my site. We'll get in my van. And so my wife who knows, she doesn't know if this is a domestic issue. She doesn't know if it's a bear attack. She just sees this woman carrying two kids barefoot running, screaming down the road towards our site. And so, uh, I kind of come down after and it's like, get him in the van, get him in the van. <laughs> and, uh, we start wrapping Matt's arms up with, uh, beach towels. Cause he's, he's, he's leaking a bit. And, uh, I kind of, ex- I'm trying to explain the situation to her best we can. And, uh, as I'm kind of explaining it to her, we sort of have forgotten about the wolf now. And I look up at, so it's, I'm, I'm in the van and Bri- uh, my wife, Brady is, um, looking at me, but the tent's behind me. And all of a sudden her eyes get real big and she starts to scream and we look over and the wolf is now on our site and it's sniffing our kids in our tent. Like it's kind of on the outs right where our kids are. And so she goes nuts. She just kind of like pushes me out of the way and just sprints at the wolf and just screaming bloody murder at the thing. And, uh, turns out that, that did it. That was the last time we saw the, (laughs) it sort of like decided this is not where I'm not dealing with this anymore. So, um, all the rocks in the world couldn't really do much, but my wife yelling at it was was more than enough, I guess, too. Look, you know what? Mama bears, mama bears are terrifying. Apparently, it's a rule that the entire animal kingdom is aware of. So, yeah, don't screw with moms. So, uh, this wolf decided not to anymore, so it ran away. Um, we were able to... Uh, by this point, other people were starting to show up, so... Um, New York Todd, I call him New York Todd. He's like, <laughs> he was, he was our neighbor. Um, he came over much more prepared than I was. He thought it was domestic. So he came over with bear spray and he had a headlamp. He was really, he was much, much better than I was. Um, we kind of told him the whole story. He saw it actually. He was there when, when my wife charged it. And, uh, so by the time we sort of were deciding what to do, because this is, of all the places we go camping, this is probably the only place that has zero cell coverage for about, you know, a few kilometers in any direction. So my family decided to um, go hang out with Todd's family in his RV. And I drove um, the Rispoli family to the Saskatchewan River Crossing, which is about 10 kilometers away. And... Um, that was my, our only hope to really try probably find an ambulance at that point. Um, we figured there'd be a security guard and, uh, that was, that was where we, that was where we took off. And, uh, yeah, we, you know, we passed a few people on the way out and just kind of said like, Hey, steer clear. Like if you're in a tent, don't do it. Cause there is a wolf in the site and it's, 
things aren't going well. Um, <laughs> and we did, um, we did drive, um, down the highway. We passed sort of a, at one point we passed this dead porcupine and I don't know, it didn't, I don't know why it stands out to me, but by the time we arrived at Saskatchewan River Crossing, we were able to phone the police and the ambulance and get all that sorted. And the police showed up. They mentioned that a conservation officer was on the road scraping up the porcupine. They had been hit by a car. And uh, the wolf actually came at him, um, probably going going for the porcupine, probably. And so he was able to shoot it because he had a gun. So that was sort of the last... um, that was sort of the last bit of the wolf. Um, you know, we would later find out that it was, um, it had been likely ejected from its pack. It was probably alone. Um, likely in the, the last few days of its life, it was starving and which is, which would explain kind of its strange behavior. And, uh, yeah, it was desperate. Yeah. And so Matt got off to the hospital, uh, tested for rabies, passed with flying colors, no real problem. They continued their, um, their Canadian vacation as best they could. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. Oh, wow. He's never going to convince his wife to go camping again. Yeah, they are. They're working on it. It's not going great, but, um, they got the kids, they got the kids back camping at least. I think they've done it in stages. They, I think they, they set the tent up in their living room and then I think they did it in their backyard. And, um, yeah, I don't think Elise is on board just yet, but, <laughs> but the two kids are okay with it. I mean, I am so glad that we can laugh about this after the fact because, oh my God, what an incredible story. I am also from Calgary. I know that space well. I've camped yeah. there before, and I know what you're talking about. It's that quiet. I totally understand. Yeah. Was there any part of you that when you realized that there was a wolf kind of cycling in and out of the trees, that you're like, I better go check on my family because there's no reason that he wouldn't have just moved on to a different campsite? Yeah. Was there any part of you that was like thinking that too? No, (laughs) there really wasn't. I think um, something that I find really interesting about the mind is if, if all goes well and you lead a very lucky life, you don't end up in these sort of tunnel vision, everything is absolutely horrifying situations. Um, For me, it was one of the first times I'd ever experienced it. And you really, at least for me, um, I was disarmed at how unable I was to do two things at once suddenly. Like I could only handle where is the wolf right now with the lantern. I couldn't, it would have made sense for me to call out to my wife to at least mentally, can you bring me a tool? Yeah, I need my axe. <laughs> um, yeah, it, it took, it took what felt like two minutes to even figure out that, Oh, I have a van. We can just go to that. Like there's other things to do here. I think the panic um, really stands out to me as something that throws you right off kilter. Understandably, I mean, quite frankly, when you were when you came mm-hmm. at that wolf's back end, you probably did the same thing to him. He was just exploring his options for dinner because the guy was starving. <laughs> exactly. And you come at his back, and he's like, "What just happened?" It did seem, yeah, he seemed like I said, he seemed more curious, kind of like unexpected. Like I, I have to imagine it's his first fight with a human too. So, um, we were both sort of confused as to what to do. <laughs> I mean, wow, that's an incredible story. Can you describe the moment you found out you were nominated for a Medal of Bravery? (laughs) I received a phone call from an RCMP officer that was requesting my story. And I didn't quite understand why. And he said, I don't know, you've been been nominated for something. 
And I have, I have zone. I have no idea what it was at the time. So I told him, I gave him my little, I gave him my little spiel. I felt kind of bad because I can't imagine this is, you know, the best part of his day. He's <laughs> taking my statement from a year ago. But, um, yeah. And then one day I just received a, uh, a phone call from the, um, governor general's office. And they had mentioned that, um, I'd been nominated for this award and, um, it would be going through, but, um, due to COVID, it was sort of up in the air. So it was kind of like, you're getting the medal. It's happening. We don't know how you're going to get the medal yet. So, um, this was, I think this was early days of COVID. So things were quite serious with the lockdowns. Um, so it was kind of a holding pattern. Uh, like you're going to get it. It's coming at some point, but we don't, we're still sort of in flux as to how this is going to work. Wow. Do you, do you consider yourself a hero? I've, I've struggled with, this is one that's been, uh, this has changed a lot over time. I was immediately very, very uncomfortable with the idea. Still uncomfortable. We'll, 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 we'll jump ahead a bit. Still very uncomfortable. Um, part of it is I didn't, I didn't feel like I made a conscious decision. It was sort of like everything about that was automatic, right? Like I did, you know, I, I did a bunch of stupid things too. I jumped over an ax and passed some bear spray. Like nobody seems to point that out, you know, like this, this automatic line of thinking had benefits and drawbacks. And so, um, I feel like if you sat me down and said in three minutes, there's going to be a wolf attack next door. What do you want to do? Then I could maybe say, yeah, it's pretty heroic that, that I did that thing. In truth, a lot of my discomfort an unwillingness around the term is that um, I sort of didn't think it was very, it was very automatic. And I don't know what would have happened had I known, to be honest with you. Um, and then at some point you sort of wonder like, is this, I don't know, is this, is this perhaps Canadian modesty run amok? Like maybe I can, maybe it's worth giving, you know, a, a slight pat on the back for a moment that, you did something nice. And I think that feeling didn't come um, sort of until the actual ceremony when I got to meet some other Canadians that had done very similar things. And it was at that point where I realized that, um, you know, these stories don't always end well. And a lot of people have these sort of just instinctual reactions to things. And, you know, I'm, standing amongst all these amazing people. And there isn't a, there isn't a shred of doubt in my mind when I talk to them and hear their story that like, that is incredibly heroic what you've done. Um, you know, maybe it's a, a little bit unkind to myself to say like, well, you're different. You, you kind of suck. So, <laughs> um, I think at a, at a certain point I've given myself permission to sort of say like, that was a good thing you did. I think heroes may be a bit of a loaded term. I don't, it sounds a little grandiose and silly to me, but um, I think I've gotten, I think I've gotten to a place where I can admit that I'm happy I behaved the way I did. I think a lot of people are really happy you behaved the way you did. <laughs> a couple of them at least. Yeah. What about your wife charging in there? I mean, she's a superhero as well. That story is incredible as well. See, I've always, I've always maintained this and I've always wanted, I've always tried to push her to be more a part of this story. Um, a, she doesn't love the limelight. She gets a little uncomfortable with it. Um, 
B, a lot of the early media stories didn't have time for that part of the story, which is kind of, I think it's my favorite part, which I think is really, really cool. And it's especially spooky that it followed us back. And, uh, but no, she's, it's a joke. It's like you said, it's the mama bear thing that every Mm -hmm. single wildlife, every single human, every single animal respect that this mother's coming at me. It's time to call it. That's what I said. And, but, (laughs) but I think timelines are a thing and we got to get the news bite out quick, but um, everyone, everyone who hears the full story seems to really enjoy that part because she's sort of this unsung hero that no one ever really mentions. And in the same way that I ran at it, she ran at it all the same, right? So, um, yeah, to me, she's just as, as big a part of the story as I was. She doesn't get the recognition. She also doesn't want the recognition. <laughs> but it's it's a fun little it's a fun little story that I like to I like to tease her that I'm I'm such a massive hero and. <laughs> We both kind of wink, wink, nudge, nudge, understand the truth. Well, does receiving this award bring up any feelings for you about being a Canadian or serving your fellow Canadians? I mean, it's a very Canadian thing to not want to accept the hero kind of idea, but it's (laughs) also a very Canadian thing to accept that you did something good and good things are good. It, it, It was interesting listening to all the other Canadians getting their award. I don't know that, I don't know that it's necessarily, um, changes anything about, um, who I am as a Canadian or anything like that. But um, it was certainly a nice thing to be able to, to be able to share that with people from, you know, coast to coast and hearing all their stories and stuff. Yeah. And how are Matt and Eliza? How are they doing? I think they're good. We had a, um, last we chatted, we usually exchange, you know, pleasantries at the, uh, at all, all the big, all the big holidays. So, um, yeah, no, they're, they're doing quite well. Um, Matt is, Matt is incredibly resilient. He's really, really, he's a very, uh, he's a very cool guy. He, uh, he does a lot of outdoorsy stuff. So I think his, his attitude is sort of one of, uh, we can't let this sort of get in the way of what we do. And I think that's something my wife and I really relate to that. We are outdoorsy people. Um, our favorite thing about Canada is our incredible access to the land. And, um, while it's impossible to go through something like this and not have it affect you in that way, we, we've both been very aware that we need to keep going out, keep enjoying nature. We want to, that's kind of one of the main things we want to pass down to our kids is that um, we're incredibly fortunate to have this and we must respect it and all those things. So I think Matt sort of shares that a bit. Um, I know Elise is uh, not as much a, outdoorsy person. So I think she struggled a bit with that, but, um, that's, I mean, I can't imagine not. Right. Um, I have quite a lot of motivation to get back into the wilderness because I love it. I think for someone who was just sort of along for the ride, doing something with her family, I think, uh, that would have been particularly terrible. Um, but as far as, as them, as people, they're, they're absolutely wonderful. Um, I really enjoy following them on, on what social media they do, they do post and it's always fun to catch up with them. That's incredible. I think all of this, like Russ, thank you so much for joining us for telling us these stories. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to Canadian Time Machine, funded by the Government of Canada and created by the Walrus Lab. This episode was produced by Carol Rolando and edited by Andre Pru. Amanda Capito is the executive producer. Like all episodes, the transcripts will be available in both English and French. To read the transcripts and to learn more about historic Canadian milestones, please visit thewalrus.ca slash Canadian Heritage. 
This is our last episode for the season. Thanks so much for listening.